Hey, what's up, y'all? This is part two of a multi-part episode. So if you have not heard part one yet, then by all means, go back and listen to part one, which should be the previous episode before listening to this one. And if you have listened to part one, then by all means, go ahead and enjoy what's to come. And here we go. And I'm going to be honest, I, yeah. it worked on me a lot of the movie. I sure. uh, I kind of fell under that spell, like that Wes Anderson spell and that uh, <laughs> that, that, that kind of shallow, hollow lyricism. Like, you know, because when you guys made a good point after the movie, like, yeah, yeah, well, that beauty. Like, for example, there's a great tracking skateboard scene, but Those why are do you make him beautiful? Like, you know, you're just making depression beautiful. Like, you're making a quote-unquote beautiful struggle. And it was funny because usually... That's the exact type of criticism I have about movies like this or the kind of things that I spot. It's one of my problems with Moonlight where I felt like they tried so hard to make struggle look beautiful and, you know, right. uh, didn't really have anything to say about struggle. Or they had a lot of damaging tropes. Like, they had, like, the knockout game in uh, Moonlight, which uh, I was weird, weirded out right. about. I'm like, we have a movie where we have black people now celebrating the knockout game as authenticity, you know, whereas these are the same people who would normally would hate it if a white person made a movie about the knockout game. And I was wondering, you know, why it took me hearing Millie and Matume to say all these things for me to realize things that I um, normally would hate and would be like the first person to uh, spot. And part of me thinks that fairly or unfairly, you know, to be honest, I think maybe I might have given it a little bit of a pass because I thought it was black men telling their own story. I agree, T. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, because I thought it was by black men. I kind of gave him a pass because I'm like, wow, black men aren't getting a shot to do this like they used to. Like now, these days, it's all about, you know, kind of like black women and black queer voices. And it's been kind of like a correction, I guess, from what they felt were, you know, black men dominating um, entertainment, maybe. But now it's all about Ava DuVernay, whatever. So I'm like, okay, I'll give these guys a little leeway to get their feet. And I think I might have been unfairly forgiving or grading on a curve or forgiving a lot of a corny special black snowflake narratives or whatever for that reason like you know they mean well they're just trying to figure it out so then when i got when i found out that it was two white guys i was like wow i feel totally uh duped and right i should have watched in a different lens you know what man like one of the uh you know going uh going back to what we said earlier um and and, and all three of you folks made really awesome points this is a movie i mean this is supposed to be about black life right and it just seemed like that the writer and and the director refused to really indict racism white supremacy yes. for for the mm-hmm. reason yeah. why these guys are where they are i mean it's uh, you know t you uh, you hit the nail right on the head man when you uh when you called it hollow and you know it's a um, beautiful don't it's, give me it's, too it's much credit shot. for that because honestly it's matume and millie who kind of set me oh. straight because i just walked <laughs> out and, and, and i was just totally into the individual personal story and like the lyricism and i just kind right. of forgave a lot of the structural stuff they were more the ones who pointed out that it was hollow and i kind of came around to their uh way of seeing things but i'm sorry go on well i mean well you know um uh, matume and millie uh thank you for uh uh, uh, for simply adding that to the conversation, I mean, again, it's it, it's a beautifully shot film, but it was one of those those it's one of those things, man. And um, you know, T, like I, I I found one of your one of your tweets. I think it was like a couple days ago, where you had where you, where you tweeted out name some films where black people cannot help themselves, right? And yeah. it was one of those, and it's one of those films, and it's like, and I'm watching this this film, and I'm thinking, and it's just getting like sadder and sadder, right? And I'm like, okay, they're going to you know. 
know, evict these folks sooner than later. And, and it was it's just it just felt like just a big just downer, man, where it's like, you know, like the slope just just kept getting steeper and steeper. And it there was there was zero hope, not saying that there has to be a happy ending. But this these people, they put a bunch of uh, just helpless black folks in the film through the white gaze and just made them just menial. And just it was just it was just full of caricature, um, as Millie point, uh, pointed out. And I, I just what I was hoping, beautiful movie, but just totally hollow, man. What I was hoping was going to happen and never did. I thought like they showed him Montgomery getting inspired and starting to write. I'm like, I don't think they're going to do something as trite. This play is a hit or uh, such and such happens. But I thought that even if it, even if he didn't get the house or whatever, what I was thinking was the experience of the house or the experience of failing of the house or realizing that the grandfather didn't build it was going to be used to inspire some correct action. So kind of like how Neely Fuller talks about, you know, we're in a pathetic state, but he's talking about it so that we can attack white supremacy and, you know, attack it from a place of realism and correct action. I'm thinking like, okay, maybe he's going to realize not quite a bootstrap narrative, but kind of realize, okay, I'm going to get involved in some kind of activism or I'm going to go back to school or i'm going to become an activist writer and i thought like maybe for example because i i saw him approaching the street preacher guy i thought maybe he was going to incorporate the street the street preacher guy in a way where he's like uh wow this struggle with my house and our struggle with it it kind of made and this thing that happened to um the guy in the street kind of made me realize that this structural stuff because the preacher was the closest you got to a structural critique uh his mm-hmm. speech in the end so so when you get like motivated after the guy dies and he starts writing like crazy and you see him approaching the street preacher with an invitation i'm thinking okay he's going to uh they're gonna start believing something bigger than themselves and i thought like even if it didn't end with everything better materially at least they would be better in a mental walker place and start taking action but then the play was kind of very after school specialist and it just became like therapy for jimmy right. like the guy's just there right. it was about to uh, jimmy learn about why you're lying to yourself <laughs> yeah yeah it became like therapy and it became uh-huh. and the only commentary they had about the guy who died was making his friends examine the toxic masculinity oh. you know what i mean like 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 it was just individual uh therapy the preacher was just there to be aped like a caricature, like, you know, just to be like um, mimicked as like window dressing. It wasn't like uh, any of his structural commentary about like why are they wearing suits and we're not, uh, why are they this? None of that was there. And then the play was kind of a flop. And, he, you know, you get the feeling he probably just went back to working at the um, fish market, living with his grandpa. Jimmy ends up even worse. Jimmy just disappears. Like he doesn't take the realism <laughs> right. and go anywhere. And that was like very um, kind of disappointing to me. But it to took me, me a while I, for that's, 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 yeah. that's a cop out. That's just, uh, he just leaves. It's a very much a cop out. And it very much this... leaves white people unindicted. Yep. Yeah, sorry, Millie, you were saying? Oh no, I was just going to say, well, I don't know if you guys remember, but before the scene in the rowboat, he leaves Mont a note. Mm-hmm. I wrote it down. The note says, I'm sorry I didn't say goodbye. Thank you for being my best friend. Now, for some reason, this didn't come across when I saw the movie the first time. Uh-huh. But when I saw it the second time, it did feel more like a suicide note. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know? I didn't even, and then we I see didn't the character rowing away. You know, I don't know where he's going, perhaps across the bay to Oakland. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I mean, but the point is that he's leaving. Right. Uh, which and character I feel was like rowing? I, I wasn't. 
I wasn't sure. I had, I had a debate with someone. Was it Montgomery rowing or no, Jimmy, Jimmy rowing? Jimmy. Uh, okay, because somebody told me that the rowboat was meant to. They thought the rowboat was Jimmy, and it was meant to show him crossing over to the other side. Like that was a symbolic suicide. Going to Oakland, right? I could kind of see. Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't think well, going wait, to Oakland is, is suicide. suicide. <laughs> but you know, I I I could see that. You know, um, I mean, the movie's heavy-handed enough in its uh, film school tropes that I could see them being that uh, heavy-handed with it of having mm-hmm. him. Crossover right, but the point is that you know he's he's giving up, he's leaving. Yes. Yeah. It, it, you yes. know, and the message is you couldn't hack it here, so now you have to leave. And you know, right? My, and that's sad, right? And my thing is like, I have no problem with tragedy because tragedy happens every day in our world, and tragedy has been shown to be a powerful dramatic tool. But if every great tragedy shows the reason why it's a tragic thing happens because the entire system or the entire culture made it so this person dies or falls apart. And his tragedy is all personal. It's all him not being able to deal with himself. And it's like, that's really unfair. We're talking about the last black man in San Francisco and these suggestions of gentrification. It's like, if we're going to make it a thing about a no exit, like he can't figure it out, he it, it, it can't be reconciled. Let's really say why people are not succeeding in life let's be really real about it you know i have the same problem with like we can i don't want to get into this with ava duvernay's when they see us it becomes about you know these couple of individuals who did something not the grander and it's not about the system right yeah and it's it's problematic to me or it's like to the extent that it's about the system it's about rotten apples in the system a few people you know but yeah but so 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 it becomes about i didn't see all of it i only saw like one and a half episodes but it was very good at emotionally conveying but you get the kind of feeling like next time hire better prosecutors right. or vet them or maybe a black prosecutor would be good or you know what if let's say these cops were black but instead of thinking like okay what are the incentives baked into uh being a prosecutor mm-hmm. the numbers you have to get as a cop the culture right. of being a cop the whole institution of police you know that uh if you put like why is it like today we have black prosecutors and black cops and black whatever and we're getting these same results you know it's it's, it's bigger than the people that you put in there it's made to turn people into monstrosities yeah. as far as um, right yeah yeah and this thing like i said it left white people very unindicted and one thing that i thought was kind of weird about it too right i felt they were kind of trying to hint that the thug might have been getting some kind of queer awakening too as that's a what i thought Montgomery. too man like yeah i thought that him and monty were oh i i thought monty had designs on him yeah i thought monty had designs on him but i also thought that maybe he was conflicted in the closet and all that softness that they were chiding him for like you know like, i remember saying he was soft soft and he looked like he was gonna cry right. and it kept kind of zeroing in on him because to cry and then he goes over and then monty takes an eye to him then he goes over to monty's place kind of tentatively and he lets his guard down i think they kind of say like oh he's closeted he's one of those down low brothers which is like <laughs> another another trope his boys kind of feel it and they're kind of trying to chastise the gay out of him but monty is open enough and special snowflake enough to kind of both spot and kind of nurture that kind of like lure him uh, kind of like lure that out of him right yeah yeah Exactly. I, I would say more nurture. I feel like lure sounds more like a trap as like a nefarious, nefarious <laughs> sure, air. Sure. <laughs> but, but I know what you mean. I know you didn't mean anything nefarious, but just no. just to say, like, I think it's more like, like, like kind of nurture or get him feeling safe enough, like a safe space to, you know, draw it out. I think draw it out is probably uh, a better word. And, and then maybe the guy got, uh, I think what they're trying to convey, this is what I felt, that he realized that he was getting more in touch with his gayness and to kind of overcompensate against it. He, he started 
dissing them. Yeah, he started dissing him because remember everything he was dissing him about was feminine stuff. Like, right. oh, you guys had some gay ass this in your house, and I'm like, okay, so you're kind of trafficking some like this kind of down low black homophobia trope, but you're not even saying anything interesting about it. Yeah, really. it's like right, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, have con. Yeah, have, he just have dies. Context with that, like you know, I work with a lot of young young people and a lot of young black males, and like those things always have context. I'm not saying that young males don't have negative in general, black, white, or whatever, don't have negative ideas when it comes to, you know, sexuality or women and things like that. But these things all happen within context. This thing happened in like this little weird ethereal space on a hill and it made no sense. I'm like, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this performative masculinity, quote unquote, thing on the middle of a a hill? Why here? And it felt so... it felt so extra, man. It's right. like the whole thing, it just felt like, again, this felt like, okay, this is the, the biggest character. This is how white folks look at black, look at black people. This is, this is how the liberal as, as well as the conservative white, white folks view young black men in particular. Right. Uh, something else that was kind of uh, to go off of what Matume was saying was but the context. Like, I feel like with a lot of these movies, is like, for example, when people try to say, oh, black people are, let's try to show an example, like, say, Crash, where the black people are kind of shown as racist as the white uh, people. And right. like, this is the idea of this kind of weird equivalency that takes away the different context to, yeah, like, for example, a, 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 a white person's a, a white person's anti-blackness is different than a black person's anti-whiteness because one is almost more like a defensive stance like it's almost like a measure of self-protection like you know that they've been burned a lot and like the black person's anti-whiteness might be something from the purpose of this is for my own survival you own all the resources you can erase me just by calling the cops on me and it doesn't make it right if i act violently against you based on that but there's a different context of somebody who owns everything on the board and just wants to stamp you out just to make a point it's not the same context and you cheapen it by flattening it i feel the same way with and i think it's where you're going with the whole the point about the whole black masculinity and stuff like if these guys were kind of toxic in their masculinity if you're not really going into how society robs them of avenues to become right, men, right. or robs them of recognition of their manhood, then it becomes the same as if a bunch of white frat boys are being misogynistic or homophobic. And this is not to say that any of this makes homophobia or toxic masculinity forgivable, but uh, at least the context makes it at least somewhat understandable, or at least gives you an avenue where you figure out how to at- how to attack it, how to address it. If you understand like where it's coming from correctly then you know how to you don't respond to it the the way you try to cure white privileged guy who's being a bully it's not coming from the same place as a brock turner you know what i mean it's it's coming from a defensive place of oppression and i kind of feel that way like everything was decontextualized from the societal issues and mm-hmm. when you do that, you in a way that I think makes liberals feel very comfortable. Yeah, and when you do that, you make it caricature. Like you take away context, you make everything a caricature, right? It's not real, right? And I think, in a way, I actually think they like that because they don't ever have to like assume any real responsibility. You know, like, I, I, it's interesting. I think we, we had said before about like talking about this film never really wanted to place itself anywhere, and I think he actually kind of said that. And um, Jimmy was a Jimmy Fails, the guy who the story is about because it's, it's supposed to be loosely based on his actual life. 
And, yes. and I remember reading in an interview that he said, he was like, well, you know, when we made the film, it really wasn't about gentrification. And, you know, because my thing wasn't really about gentrification. He seemed very, like, uncommittal to, like, really right. attach it to anything outside of, like, his personal feelings. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to go there, mm-hmm. but he wanted to also name it The Last Black Man in San Francisco because why? It's a, it's a, it's a provocative <laughs> title. So it's just like... Yeah, and, 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 and you made a good you point. Can't have and, it both uh, ways. Yeah, what do you exactly, made a good point? Man. When you give it that title, you've almost assumed uh, a burden or a... Um, yeah. Or, yeah. Yo, right. that's deep. That's you know what's crazy? That's a deep phrase. It? Last Black Man in San Francisco. I'm immediately like, okay, what's this about? <laughs> Yeah, it worked on me. The reason why that you're the last black man in in, in San Francisco more than likely is because of gentrification. Like, come on, man. Yeah. Like the yeah, like gentrification is the reason why that they can dump toxic waste in in Hunter in in Hunter's Point and have your black ass up breathing fumes. Like that's well, this was kind of this was this was kind of really kind of annoying about it is that it leads off with what actually the opening words are the most structural systemic its scope ever is and then i remember getting kind of lulled in by that and it was immediately undercut by the black west anderson tighter creatorish uh hipster hip detachment irony thing where the first thing those two guys goes this dude's at it again and then there's a kind of a couple of insincere n-words like like uh-huh. it sounds like you know the way Easter races says the n-word where mm-hmm. it doesn't where it feels like okay you're being performative with it it's fake slumming like like because i think they use the and where I think they say like this nigga's at it again, and then all the white people laughed when they said that about the preacher. So I was like, wait, is that speech he gave where he talks about like the toxic waste and how, why did they do it here and all the design? Was it just there just to be laughed at? And it's almost like it just immediately undercut it. And if anything, it seems like they put it there just to reassure the white people that that's crank talk. Like by having the two cat black characters laugh at it right away. And what I the reason I forgave it right. at first was because because I thought they were going to come back around and kind of realize that even in his crank way, he actually has a point, you know, but uh, it kind of never happened. He was never really redeemed. They never really changed in any significant way as far as how they viewed things or... And and there's something here, right, that I think is like a fake autobiography that I kind of hate. And somebody pointed this out with Lena Dunham. Like, Lena Dunham's Girls is technically like about her, right? And she has... She has these this character who's supposed to be uh, like Hannah, whatever her name is. And it's Lena Dunham in a superficial way, but she doesn't have the pedigree that Lena Dunham has as far as like family and whatever with all the nepotism. So they're kind of leaving that out. So it's almost How like convenient. Yeah. So she's co- <laughs> so she's cosplaying what real struggling white creatives without famous parents or trust funds uh go through but she's like wallowing in their misery but that's not kind of really her life she's has a charmed life she tells you her story of how she got girls she walked into hbo and they're like hey please pitch us something and you know uh like they wanted her and she had had a cue card with like three words she bluffed her way and just gave her a show you know and it's like why not why not tell that story? Like, why not tell that story and, you know, be real about it. Like, be real how you got here. You're privileged. People kind of need to know that. Like, because people are, like, moving to Bushwick to be these characters and girls. And, you know, you're not telling them the full story, like, how you got here, whatever. And that kind of bothered me with the Jimmy Fails thing. I'm like, okay, this Jimmy Fails that you've pretending is you and you've given him even this name jimmy fails right and you're kind of crazily that's the actor's name no exactly no that's what i mean this jimmy fails is supposed to be you the the actor jimmy fails and you 
making it your name adds to that confusion. But right. this guy's in a group home. But I found out you went to performing arts school in San Francisco where you're able to meet this white kid who's the who's directed the movie who also co-wrote it who is the son of the founder of Salon like wow really yeah yeah Damn. yeah he, he went to some kind of it sounded like it was some kind of like busing program wow. or a magnet school kind of thing but he went to this performing arts school in San Francisco that allowed him to go to school with the white director and white co-writer of this movie and they kind of try to pretend the white director is more blue collar than he is because he's a high school dropout and his uh, father and them lived in a not so glamorous part of San Francisco but you find out the father was actually the founder of salon.com and oh, but yeah that makes sense he, man yeah, yeah, and, and the his father like it was like a big he he wrote like a very important book about San Francisco history. He's like a well regarded kind of historian when it comes to San Francisco. He's not like some like yeah. flippant guy on like the side, right? Wow, yeah, and the and the and the father uh grew up in uh privilege and stuff. Uh, the father went to like the top schools and came from money and stuff. So to kind of pretend that this guy's high school dropoutness is similar to say. A rapper who's a high school dropout or a trader trash white guy who was a high school dropout. It's not really the same. Like yeah. he dropped out of high school the same way Bill Gates dropped out of college. It's like <laughs> uh, they dropped out because they had a safety net to drop out uh-huh. with. You know, it wasn't uh, the same kind of uh, dropping out. And that's kind of like what bothered me about the hopelessness of the situation they presented, because you could have had Montgomery or whatever. Do some kind of avenue, like like the Jimmy Fields in a movie. Uh, his childhood friends are just the guy from the group home and the thugs in the street and Montgomery the weirdo and stuff. And it would have been interesting if they showed, even if it was an individualistic solution, but at least shown like them do some kind of hustle and get some measure of the same success that the real life Jimmy Fields got by hustling with this white guy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it it wouldn't have been any more of a systemic solution, but at least they would have been a little more honest. Or show some kind of hope, even if the hope was a indiv- individualistic solution. But I felt like they were wallowing in these people's misery and kind of presenting it as if they were talking about their own misery. But they were leaving out key parts, kind of similar to how uh, Lena Dunham leaves out those parts of her semi-autobiographical type of stuff. Or, I mean, uh, or even how Issa Rae le- uh, leaves out parts, how the fact that, you know, she uh, she was born uh, with within privilege herself right right yeah totally. exactly exactly but that's and, the thing and like her man. parents moved all around and owned property and all this stuff uh her isa her isa character just you know they barely even mention it they mention almost obliquely that she's african they hint at if you notice isa ray's character in insecure they don't even show her parents she's the only one whose parents they show molly's parents you know left and right but they don't show hers that's kind of and that's kind of amazing how people who did not live a bootstrap life are so attracted uh, attracted to the bootstrap narrative. You know, like yeah, it's so it's kind of or the black or yeah or, or the black non savior because this wasn't even really a bootstrap narrative. It was just kind of like right, you suck, you know. Right. <laughs> narrative. I was thinking more know, of like Issa Rae and like Lena Dunham. You know, like they they want to sell this idea that they are you know self made. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're they're right. You're so, right. That's true. Especially they're so attached to you're it, right, and it's right. like, uh, no, you're not. That's hilarious. <laughs> no, you're yeah, not. You're totally, you're totally right. Because because outside but of they the, profit from that. That's 
that's what mm-hmm. bugs me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they do. When it's so transparent that it's not. Like, they're not from that. They're from privilege 100%. But, and that's just that. I think the programs that they created, they're, I always see them create these kind of programs, like these writer workshops and whatever. But I feel like those writer workshops are just to kind of perpetuate the own myth of their hustle. Right. But those people in those workshops aren't going to have the connections that Issa Rae and them have, which is how they really, like Issa Rae and Lena Dunham didn't get put on because of some after school program or some workshop. It's their parents and their Ivy League pedigrees or whatever it is, those kind of connections. And they don't really tell that. If, if anything, they should like, you know, do some program to help black kids get into uh, Ivy Leagues or, you know, get internships. You know what I mean? But I noticed they kind of, even the charities are kind of a fake bootstraps charity uh we're gonna help you it's kind of like girls who code type of charities you know like they go to the hood and uh <laughs> have a bunch of people in the hood like taking coding classes They're like oh no Black the people that are gonna get hired at google went to stanford you know mm-hmm. they weren't from girls who code like stop acting like you're putting these people to become the next bill gates you're the those programs are all around in San Francisco and and lo and behold, they always come from these rich benefactors from like Salesforce, you know, like face Facebook, Google. And and I'm like, so you guys are, are creating these these programs, girls, girl, girls who code or there's a or there's something called um, code code tenderloin, which in it, which 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 the tenderloin is a is a very rough neighborhood in San Francisco. The problem with that is is that San Francisco is based on social capital. So if you don't know them folks in them high positions, you uh, you ain't you ain't gonna be able to get them jobs anyway. Right. And what they're trying to do with that, this is what I think they're trying to do with that. Uh, and some some people told me this is already happening. There's a lot of grunt work and stuff that the top guys don't want to do. They want to create like this kind of permanent underclass, uh, precariously employed coding force that's never going to be in danger of taking their jobs because they're the, the real high level jobs they're giving to like the people who went to Stanford and MIT absolutely and whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is yep. just kind yeah, of a way to, to, um, I never thought of that as deep. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, and they get to look like heroes in the process. Absolutely. So you really yeah, have to exactly. ask who is benefiting most from this. Um, and on top of that, like um, the code thing um, about those coding programs, y'all, is it they actually with all these people uh, taking uh, taking all of these coding classes, going through these coding programs, they're actually cheapening how much these jobs pay. Exactly. So, and that's by, and that's by design. They want that to happen. Yep. And when they cheapen it, it's not going to endanger their job because they're not in that pool that's competing for their jobs. You know, it, it's, it's just to lower the bottom line, you know. That's man. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't cut you off on the rest of your point, did I? I just got very excited because that's... I, I, oh, I hate no. that coding. I didn't say anything. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. I don't want. Oh, I'm sure I didn't cut off. Oh point, no, man. But. That's just deep to me. That's that's wow. I'm I. <laughs> be, be, because right now, do you know it's filling kind of a lot of those grunt jobs is these immigrant coders and stuff and i think this is one of the few times where like you know americans are going to be stealing <laughs> the jobs back from the immigrants it's going to be they're going to try to get people from the hood to uh you know replace the third world immigrant in the coding jobs that people don't want you know the coding day laborers <laughs> so so to speak i don't exactly remember i don't remember our exact path to this topic <laughs> but don't you guys feel it ties so well to the movie absolutely it does yeah. totally you know? it does. because totally. This is privileged white filmmakers using a black story to promote their filmmaking. 
and a black face because in a way you know using that guy as the co-story writer because at first we even thought he was the co-screenwriter but then we realized there's actually two writing credits there's story by then written by and the whole screenplay is just by two white guys uh, one is the guy that he went to performing art school with who has the rich dad who started salon and is is a renowned author and the other is some uh, white guy who went to columbia film film school so uh, Jimmy Fallon is not even like a real co-writer in terms of penning the screenplay. He's 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 half of the story. Like story by what's his name? It's just Joe Landon, the guy's the director's name. Oh, Talbot. Talbot. Oh, Joe. Yeah, story by Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails, and then actually written by uh, Joe Talbot and Rob Rob Ricare, and both of them Rob Share, and both of them are uh, white. And yeah, this thing is very. Um, creepy to me about that where he's kind of almost uses a human shield the black guy is a way to kind and he of- and he he vehem- fails d- vehemently defends you know talbot using it saying he's my best friend no one understand wow, under- really? understands well they grew up together they grew up as friends that's too bad so he's like, he's like they 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 we, he no one know can do my story better than him i trust him and, and it becomes this thing what, what i think you talk about like a, like a kind of shield he's using it as a kind of way to like it's criticism proof is what you had said right well the right. fact that he's yeah, my yeah. best friend means it's criticism proof you cannot critique the fact that i've used this white guy to tell this story about he my gives black it, life he right. gives it he gives it authenticity and he's almost inserted for that reason i feel like jamal true love kind of felt that way too because i'm like if you're using him but you're not really using him in some kind of great acting capacity you're not really using him to make any type of critique about what happened to him that's kind of something structural you know like why is he really there for and i think he's just a way to give the veneer of deepness like oh jamal true love is there it almost feels important. It almost feels like I'm watching a commentary on something because something important happened to this guy. He's a totem of something important, but they never unpack what that is. Like, what is the lesson of Jamal True Love? How does he relate to the larger message of the movie? But there is no contextual structural message, you know? And, and it's ironic. It sounds so critical of it now because honestly i was enjoying the movie while i was watching it i was actually more entertained by it than you guys and then you guys kind of snapping out of the spell <laughs> and that's one of the biggest compliments i can give to the movie it casts a pretty good spell if you let yourself go into it and my wife is still a very strong defender of the movie she even wanted me to let you know that she has <laughs> stood strong in her she, uh, support oh man, of the- she should have come on <laughs> no she i wanted to i wanted her to but she uh uh didn't want to <laughs> didn't come want on be attacked by four people <laughs> who didn't agree <laughs> yeah but but even now i still kind of because um millie and matume are uh, filmmakers so you guys didn't even like the part that i liked which is the film school one-on-one uh tracking shots and a lot of the lyricism i actually got very lulled into enjoying the visuals and stuff and you guys thought even those are kind of heavy-handed and well don't deserve, that's uh, okay t we forgive you we forgive you and, and, and what it is for yeah, I still me stand by it. i think what it is yeah. for me it just it gets really hard to accept those things when they're being used to you know deliver something else that I just can't really get down with, you know? Right. And the thing is that I, I think the movie, it takes a little while for you for the real messages of the movie to start dawning on you, don't you think? Totally. You yeah, know? Like yeah. I was in the first half hour, you're just trying to figure out what's going on. Right. Yeah, and, and I think I was still processing it. easiest to appreciate, you know, the beautiful the aesthetics. Shots. Yeah, yeah. I think I was still processing it as a Black Wes Anderson type movie. And I think maybe that helped me be forgiving on you know a lot of the gratuitous beauty making whereas with moonlight i remember from moonlight from the very beginning you can tell very much it's a black pain 
black pathology movie. So it was harder for me to mm-hmm. just lose myself in the palette of the movie with that one because there was no room to fool myself that I'm just watching a quirky, inconsequential, like I said, house party-ish type of uh, farce. Because there was kind of weird magical, like magical realism type of thing to it that uh, I think in the end kind of ends up misplaced when you see how depressing it ends. Yeah. Yeah. One of the last things I wanted to say, and then I was going to let it go to go to you guys and whatever else you wanted to say is after the movie we were talking about, because my wife said like, you know, at least there was no white savior. And I was like, I think it, I think it is still a white savior movie in a weird way, but the white savior is implied by their omission because there's this type of movie that I call like the black non-savior movie. And what it right. is to me- I love like a, this. Yeah, a black non-savior movie is what the white savior movie would be without the white savior. Like, you know, it's, so it's like, yeah, there's no white savior, but look at how these black people can't save themselves. And <laughs> right. the whole thing is almost informed or uh, there's an implied sense that if this is what happens when the white savior doesn't come around, this is this, this is a worldview still born out of the worldview that produces the white savior. Like, you know, because yep. part of the belief of the white savior is the fact that black people can't save themselves and they need the white savior. Yeah. So uh, at the very best, there's only one, only one of two things comes out of the black non-savior movie. One is that you say you don't want a black savior. You say you don't want a white savior. Well, hey, this is what you get when you don't have one. Isn't it sad? <laughs> and then when white people watch it, it's still the same type of self-congratulation they get from the white savior movie because because then they think wow if only more of us got involved it's still Mm self-flattering or even worse it implies hey look even white people can't save you you can't save yourself and even white people can't save you no one can help you Mm -hmm. but in both cases it's not really white people's fault you know and in a way it's almost even more depressing when it's like you can't save yourself and you're beyond the help of anyone else it's yeah um but i'll let you guys keep going as far as any final thoughts you have about the movie yourselves is there anything was, you wanted to get in that you feel like you didn't get to uh, get in? I was thinking in? about something you said earlier, T, um, you know, about judging a film on its own worth. You know, I mean, I, I think that it's nice to think that you can judge a film on its own merit and ignore the annoying Twitter reviews and, you know, all the extra narrative context. But I think what I noticed with this film is that your ability to do that, to ignore the context dissipates completely the minute you sit down in a theater to watch the movie with an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes. You know, because you're right. The audience really kind of colored how uh, some jokes went over for me. And it, it's right, a community exactly. experience. It is a community. It's an interactive experience. You know, the audience reacts to the movie, and then you react to the audience's reaction. Um, it can't be helped. That's how the you know movie theater viewing experience works. Uh, so you know, I I realize that we spend a lot of time you know analyzing some of the extra narrative stuff, but I I, I think it matters. You know. No, I definitely think it matters for sure, for sure, totally. And it's kind of weird. There were some things where I felt like in a black theater, I might have laughed. But when I laughed here and I saw the white people laughing a little too hard, like harder than I was laughing. I was like, oh wait, that God. wasn't that you funny. You have no idea. Yeah. There was this couple next to M. Tume and me and they just, a uh, slightly white, older white couple, and they loved it. Oh God, yeah. You know, slapping their knees. Oh. This oh is boy. great, <laughs> they said. I think that's when, you know, the gravity of the situation sort of started to hit home for me, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Leron, as the San Francisco? Actually, you know what? I'm going to let you get the final word as the person who actually lives in San Francisco. So you should, I feel like you should get, uh, for, for the symmetry, you know, this, this is my <laughs> own poetry. Uh, for the symmetry of you starting off, I'll let you uh, have the final word. Uh, Matume, is there anything you feel like uh, was on your notes of things to say about the movie? And uh, no. 
I think I think my overall thing, and, and this is this is like a thing I'm I'm having in general, is I I actually see this film as part of a trend. Like I don't I don't think this yes. film is a um some kind of outlier mistake. I actually find this as part of a regular norm. And um you know I, there's this way that we're dealing with racialized people in movies and in cinema where you know we have to find out how to show how dignified they are right and we do it through their hardship right and how they have this beautiful the whole beautiful struggle exactly exactly what i was going to say this beautiful struggle thing and you know Oh, I, I want to add one more thing. Beautiful Struggle is both the name of a Ta-Nehisi Coates book and the name of a Ta- Talib Kweli um, album. Album, and I felt Ugh. like I, f- I felt like yeah. this movie was so made for white fans of <laughs> those both, both of, those. of them. Uh, uh, no, no diss on Ta-Nehisi Coates. Actual diss toward Talib Kweli, but yeah. uh, st- still the same struggle. I mean, that same... Uh, I think white liberals are very enthralled with that. I'm sorry, but keep no going. Problem. I just, just want to add that. Yeah, and it's part of a trend. And I and I do think this film is aware of that. You know, I think there's been these films that have come out the last bunch of years, you know, maybe half a dozen years that have gotten been really successful and they're taking the cues. So they'll walk into Sundance and say, hey, man, we're going to do that. But with San Francisco and gentrification and it's becoming a trend. And, and because audiences, mainly white audiences or, you know, black or colored audiences that want to have a kind of white adjacent, <laughs> you know, experience, they're into it and they're giving a demand for it. And I'm, I'm, I'm really bothered by it. I don't really have a larger comment other than, yeah, we're about to be in, we, we in some thick times right now. It's high cotton. Yeah, exactly. Because now, because now even the, the so-called struggle art is very like neoliberal yeah. and solutionist and tepid and lukewarm. Like if this is the stuff that's supposed to be the anti-capitalist right. or, or if this is supposed to be the, like the woke, yeah, uh-huh. yeah the anti-establishment, like this is supposed to be the woke stuff, then you know we're we're pretty far we're off. Screwed. We're screwed. Yeah, yeah, we're screwed. Yeah, yeah, because because this is like very much you can almost see product placement being in this. I I could have seen the bank. I could have seen the bank. I guess in the bank putting its name in right. the in the lending they scene. Should have. Right. Why not? Yeah, yeah, because the bank wasn't like really portrayed as a bad guy at all when they denied him a loan. It was just kind of like I'm sorry. This whole, the whole natural force thing, like I, you know, we'd like to help you, but like I care, I I want to help, but you're just too fucked up, you know. You just don't have any they money. Sure. Right. I'm sorry, man. That part bothered me too, man. I hated that yeah. part. Like, 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 if you were somebody who had a steady job and was somebody in the neighborhood for a good loan, and then they were turning him down or giving him like a fucked up loan, you know, then the banker looked like a bad guy. But he was so blatantly delusional. The same delusion of his father, his grandfather, supposedly building the house, was there with him. Uh, like, I work part time in like a nursing home, and you know, I mean, I barely work because I couldn't get what what his work situation was like. He was barely at work, so right. I feel like he couldn't. Right. He couldn't have been a full-time employee he just, work once he's a nurse once yeah, and he then just he was at the house every other day after that yep. yeah and and he wasn't like there from the morning so it looks like it's a part-time thing almost like, almost like it might be like volunteer or part-time so it's like it's like okay so he's just the same way he's delusional about what his grandparents actually did and his and how they lost the house He's delusional about what he deserves. He thinks that, you know, uh, he can't get loans and stuff and other black people are getting gentrified because they didn't go to school. They're doing um, part-time work and expecting million-dollar loans, you know? It's it's not because they're giving qualified people an extra hard time or they're 
discriminating against them, you know. So a bank could have put their name in, on there as a product placement, and they would probably wouldn't have hurt the brand. Totally. The bank seemed like <laughs> very sympathetic. Like they entertained them more than they probably should have. Mm-hmm. Are you done, um, yeah, I'm done. Do you have anything? Yeah, I'm done. Okay, so, so <laughs> oh, he's done. All right, <laughs> he's oh, done. done. Uh, Finish. Uh, Laron, any <laughs> any parting thoughts? Man. Uh, well, you know, uh, Matume, uh, Millie, um, you guys were, were absolutely brilliant. Um, I, it, you, I was happy so, for once to not be the biggest negative Nelly. I'm used to. Uh, <laughs> I'm always. Well, I'm always together more often. Yeah, I'm always the biggest negative Nelly, so you can just use really? me every time. Oh, totally. Oh yeah, it's one of the first times. Yeah, it's one of the first times where I was. Yeah, worst cop. Yeah, one of the few times I was a good cop. I was like, oh, guys, was it really that bad? Are you being too hard on it? Like, <laughs> It was a different role for me, <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, sorry, go on the road. No, no. Um, so this movie has so much hype for like the past couple years, right? You know, being an SF, people have been talking about this for a long time. Oh man, like, uh, the black, uh, I'm, I'm like the last black man, uh, in SF is, you know, like it, it had been in the works for a really long time, y'all. So when it finally hit, I mean, there was, I, for one, I really wanted to like this film and, you know, it's, I thought that it was going to be an explicit film about, you know, gentrification, racism, white supremacy, and it ended up being this dreamy sort of film about loss and about just goofy black folks, like the, the part in the bank that, I mean, it just, I was like, come on, bro. Like I make good money and I can't get a loan for a $4 million home. Duke is an orderly like that. You know, like that, but it, it was just totally unrealistic. And it just, it really made the black people just look hopeless and just helpless. And they just, and kind of dumb too. Like, ex- delusional. Right. Yeah. It's dumb. Like that part, it just kind of signified just, wow. Like, you know, Going back to your tweet, T, like, you know, these black folks cannot help themselves. And going back to what Matume said, man, this and I want to straight up to look. I love Moonlight. I loved um, uh, the 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 fellow second movie, uh, something um, on something street. Bill Street. Bill Street. Yes. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. One. I, Bill Street is probably the most beautiful like shot film I've seen in a really long time. Right. Yeah. And I didn't like the messaging of Moonlight, but I did like the visuals of it. Right. And beautiful. And that's beautiful problem, film, that's, right. That's the same problem I had with this one. Like where I feel conflicted. I could recommend both films but i just don't particularly like the messaging it took me uh talking to million matume to realize i didn't like the messaging of um this movie though like uh and like um i like so me you know again i love moonlight i thought it was you know i i had never seen anything like it i have not seen it since so you know again it'll probably take a more of a more of a critical eye but i gotta be honest with you man when millie told me and i'm sorry when she said on this line that it was written and directed by a white person that just kind of shifted a lot of a lot of my views and that's um, and that's sad i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad that thing. That was the same dilemma. That was the same we dilemma had that I had. experience, though. Yeah. I thought it was written and directed by the Jimmy Fails guy. That's what I'm he saying, was some, man. Yeah. Some, some new uh, black talent. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give him a I'm slide. super pumped. Right. You're yeah, like, yeah. You know, um, you want so, him to win, right? <laughs> yeah, so I was giving him a lot of like forgiveness on stuff, and then when I saw I was like two uh, privileged white guys, I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. It, it, so, it, so, so you're just using us to get because honestly, without black people in this, this would have just been Wes Anderson light, and oh I think he would not have got as much attention. Like the black stuff 
really, I think, helped it shine in a Ab- way that was ignored it, otherwise. It gave it some little, some some little core. But when yeah. I found out that it wasn't directed by uh, by black folks, and when it didn't have a, a when it, it did not attack the prob the reason why you are the last black man in San Francisco is because of the fact that black people represent, I'm sorry, black men represent over 50% of unemployment um, in San Francisco. The, uh, the fact that Twitter say, I, I believe it, I believe it has about four, about 44, 4,500 uh, employees and only 80 of them are, are, are black. Facebook is at 2% black wow. folks. Google is at 3%. So because you're not choosing to just simply indict the system and you got black folks on here looking looking goofy and dumb and it's just man i i don't i don't know like i i definitely do not i don't recommend this uh this film man i I just it could have been something that it wasn't and this is it it just goes back to what we said you guys i mean these are two privileged white guys this is this is how white people see us and i mean just thoroughly disappointed thoroughly Um, disappointed there's a term that I coined for a certain type of art or works that I call like bathwater works. And to me, like a bathwater work is like, um, you know, they say don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but yeah. some things have so much bathwater in them. Like there's no way you can <laughs> um, enjoy the baby without swallowing some bathwater. I feel like this is one of those bathwater things. Like, like, like this is a bathwater movie where it's like, I want to recommend it because I actually did like some of the quirky aspects. And I want to tell people, try to go and watch it just as a, as a Black West Anderson movie. But right. I feel like there's too much bathwater in there with the terrible structural commentary and the half-ass gentrification commentary and the lack of scope and proper context so i i don't know if i recommend it because there's a part of me that you know despite my criticisms of it wants to say you know you can still get something out of it on a lyrical visual level but i'm gonna i'm conflicted there's older movies i think people can go watch like go watch nothing but a man that's my that's my opinion like i i feel like there's this idea that we have to go watch we have to watch stuff that's made right now i'm like nah man there's still a lot of great black films go watch chameleon street like go watch great black cinema that we've done that does represent us in a really multi-dimensional way like this stuff is i I wouldn't recommend it i'm i'm but i'm also one of those people who goes very hard and be like nah I feel it. Sorry. <laughs> That's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Go watch Daughters of the Dust. Right. There's plenty of stuff. Go watch, oh, oh, go watch Ashes and Embers. You know? Oh, you have to see it. Or Yelene. Yelene. Multiple people. I've never that heard of it. an amazing people. film. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple people have recommended Daughters of the Dust, including Matuma. Yeah. I think, I think you, you also recommended uh, it. To yeah. Me. It's one of my favorite movies. It's really great. Okay. So, so you know what? I think one day we should have an all positive one where we just talk about two or three movies that we like. Right. I'm doesn't so down for that. Yeah. I'm so down yeah. for that. Yeah. For once. And and, be and, cool. and it doesn't have to be a recent, it doesn't have to be a recent movie because like you said, this is kind of idea that you have to only review recent stuff. It could be 10, 20, 30 years old and we can still talk about it. And I think that'll be good because I think it's good to not just tell people what you don't like, but uh, show them what you do like. And I like that you mentioned totally agree that, uh nothing but a man was was by a white guy because to this day it's been like for years one of my favorite movies and i always thought it was by somebody black just because they got the humanity so well and um i'm glad we were able to put that 
as contrast so people who have or want to see less black man san francisco can see that movie and kind of see what we're talking about when we talk about white empathy done right and with that i'd like to thank everybody for coming appreciate you guys coming down this turned out pretty good and i hope a lot of people enjoy it and also i hope it's kind of weird because you do you think you need to see this mo- this movie to enjoy this episode? I feel like you almost don't because I think the conversation was pretty informative in and of its own. I would tell people to even listen to this without or recommend it to other people, you know, who haven't even seen the movie yet. I think it would almost be better for people to listen to this before they see the movie, if that makes sense. I think it could work mm-hmm. in multiple think, ways, personally. I think I think you yeah, could multiple yeah. ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so don't be afraid to share this with people, you know, who haven't even seen the movie yet. You know, just tell them the spoilers, but it'll enhance the viewing experience. That's what I say. And, oh, one last thing. Any last plugs? Anybody have anything they want to promote before we sign off? I think Laurent already, you gave your site and everything. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. I feel like Matume, I feel like Matume you never even yeah. uh, gave your background yeah, when we yeah. started. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Sir Corgant. I'm right there uh, talking about. I talk about movies a lot. So and Sir Corgant is S I R C O R E G A N T. But or just put yeah. I see a lot of his. I see a lot of his points on Twitter. Uh, I use them on and the show, the, and, so. and back and forth, brother. Of course. Uh, okay. Know, cool. Of course. <laughs> you know. But yeah. Yeah, hit, find me there, and you know I'm a filmmaker, and I talk about my work there. Okay, and and Millie, did you uh, get to uh, plug everything you wanted to plug? Yeah, I think so. Uh, okay. Yeah, let us know what you guys think of this pod. Um, again, I'm at one Millicent Cho on Twitter. Yeah, and if you vehemently disagree, feel free to do that too, because I would like to hear. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, persuasive That'd be awesome. other point. Yeah. All right, guys, be good. Take care. Thanks, T. Thanks, bro. All right, T. Peace.